You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Rothbeam. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Love Thy Neighbor show, which is the only podcast on earth that is dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by your other co-hosts, Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. We are but three meager journeymen on a quest to find Niebuhr. We started last week working through Niebuhr's book, Beyond Tragedy, it's one of his more accessible and digestible volumes, partly because they fit the mold of something called a sermonic essay. The sermonic essay is what it sounds like. It's a sermon and essay form. It always begins with scripture, and the entire essay is a reflection on that scripture in the historical context in which Niebuhr is writing. Last week, we covered Deceivers Yet True. This week, we're looking at one of Niebuhr's most famous and most cited essays, most quotable essays, I'd say. It's uh, chapter two and Beyond Tragedy, Beyond Tragedy, simply titled The Tower of Babel. Aaron, do you want to get us uh, started off by just reading the scripture? And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as a journey from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, go, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to to see the city and the tower, which the children of men built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people are one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them, which they have imagined to do. Go, let us go down. And there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the earth, face of the earth. And they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth. And from hence, uh, thence did the Lord scatter them abroad on the face of the earth. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. It's an interesting translation uh, decision there of calling the, I guess, the concrete for the mortar slime. <laughs> is, is that what you took out of this reading this week? That's what I took out of it. Like, why <laughs> call it slime? Stolen. Obviously, this is, you know, classic story. We all, we all know the story. A lot of interpretations about this. Now, one of the interesting things that Niebuhr does here at the very beginning is he seems to place a question mark on the story. I do think Niebuhr is a little gun shy sometimes. He doesn't want to give too much credit, maybe. And I want to know why. But one point he makes here at the beginning, I think, might be a little disingenuous. And I want to see what you guys think. He basically says, look, this story about the Tower of Babel was probably just written to give an explanation for a weird unfinished tower in Babylon and give an explanation for why so many speak different languages. And 
I'm thinking as I'm reading this, you know, come on, Ryan, that's kind of like saying the story of the fall was just to explain why we die and why we don't like being naked. Yeah, I mean, it's con- it's like um, he dismisses the context and intent of these stories for what he calls the essential meaning. And that is like expressed throughout all religious myth. That's in their quotes. Um, they express a deeper story about human nature and everything we go through. I think he, he kind of well, he compares the myth of Babel uh, to the myth of Prometheus. It's on the same plane, the same thing. Yeah. Um, it kind of expresses similar things about um, human nature, but they aren't building off one another. They're completely two separate stories, but they still have essential truths to tell us about what it means to be human. And yeah. It's interesting that he begins being like, I don't know why it was written, but this is what we're going to take from it kind of thing. I just thought that was, and it's kind of maybe, oh, go ahead, Zach. Oh, I I think, I mean, in part, he's, I think, anticipating some of his audience objections, as it almost seems like to me. Yeah, Like he's anticipating some of the objections to the story um, based on its origins. And he's just, he's acknowledging the possible origins without letting that sideline him from, uh, getting some meaning out of the story. That's actually a really good answer to this. And that, and it's something that I didn't really consider, but that's a great way to put it, Zach. It's almost like he's kind of piggybacking off of the previous chapter a little bit of saying, look, you don't have to believe in like the factual stuff going on here uh, in order to derive this complex meaning of what's going on. Even the intended meaning, you know, don't get hung up on that. You know, um, let's just look at kind of what like what kind of extra new dimension this reading can actually give us today. You don't you don't think he's looking at the intended meaning? Well, I think that he's questioning the intended meaning by saying, look, this might have been just a way of explaining, you know, why there are many different languages. Okay. you know, Um, but I think that that's silly. And I don't think that Niebuhr really believes that. Like, because I don't think that Niebuhr believes that, like, the story of Adam and Eve is just about, oh, let's explain why, you know, we don't like snakes. You know, I don't think he really thinks that, you know, I think that he he sees the fall and its intended meaning to have a much richer dimension than just kind of some of the peripheral things that it ends up explaining. You know, you know it might be there is a section in Sabella's book that we read where he explains Niebuhr's project as bringing religion under the guise of like ethics. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, because, you know, his close relationship with Paul Tillich and using his myth, the reason why Niebuhr isn't so concerned with context or intent is because they don't really give us the arts of the situation. They don't tell us what we should be doing. Good or point. you know how we should be going about thinking about what this means for us to do right so good point and kind of like what zach was saying it kind of disarms you know yeah. any critics of it you know okay granted like maybe this was i don't think he really believes it but he may but he's saying okay whatever maybe this was intended for x y and z um, but I don't think that that's necessarily what we get from it. That's not the truth that we get from it is we can't get lost in the weeds of intention just as much as we can't get lost in the weeds of facts. 
you know, type of thing. somewhat disarming. Yeah, that's right. It makes you inactive as well. I'm not, not an active agent, um, which scripture kind of compels you to be an active agent and a steward. Like in Genesis, <laughs> we are God's stewards of the earth. But if all we're doing is getting caught in the weeds and details of the stories, then we're not really acting as agents, are we? Right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, he's trying to distance himself from kind of that whole program of thought that that kind of gets lost in the is and not the ought, not the ethics of it, not the moral dimension. Yeah. Um, okay, good. So I've kind of divided this up into the four sections that he he gives, but I've kind of given my own kind of titles to each section. So first, he's going to be exploring kind of the philosophical underpinnings of his thought of the Tower of Babel kind of building up his own um, way of reading it. And then he's going to look at the history of Western civilization um, and kind of the construction of towers, building of towers. And then he's going to look at how those towers fall. And then he's going to have kind of concluding remarks and application on, on this whole section. So first off, the philosophical underpinnings um, I'm just going to read kind of one one section here to get us started. This this section right here, I think, really lays a foundation for Nature and Destiny of Man, which he's going to be writing right after this. Um, Nature and Destiny is filled with this type of thinking. And it's kind of like a couple of weeks ago when Aaron and Jason and I went through Kierkegaard. It's, it's very much channeling Kierkegaard here. But this is what he says. Page 28. Man is mortal. That is his fate. Man pretends not to be mortal. That is his sin. Man is a creature of time and place whose perspectives and insights are invariably conditioned by his immediate circumstances. But man is not merely the prisoner of time and place. He touches the fringes of the eternal. He is not content to be merely American man or Chinese man or bourgeois man or man of the 20th century. He wants to be man. He is not content with his truth. He seeks the truth. His memory spans the ages in order that he may transcend his age. His restless mind seeks to comprehend the meaning of all cultures so that he may not be caught within the limitations of his own. This is pretty deep stuff here, but I think it explains kind of our ability to transcend our own position and imagine much more than what we actually are. So maybe we can break this up a bit. So um, there's all these, there's, there's in, in Niebuhr's kind of philosophical assessment of his position here, he does provide a historical lens of seeing the ways in which man tries to defy his finiteness, which we can get into in a bit. But I think the important point here, as, as we'll know with Kierkegaard, is that man is like a composite of two things, finitude and transcendence, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know, do you guys want to unpack that a bit? So what that means? Yeah, so we're not just animals. Uh, we are not just limited to our contingencies, to what we are dependent upon. We are that kind of weird animal that can transcend our own position and imagine worlds and systems and things that go beyond ourselves that we see ourselves being a part of. 
so there's this internal clash between what we can imagine and what we can realistically do. I like the way that Kierkegaard addresses it of finiteness and uh, infiniteness or infinity and finiteness, however he puts that. Uh, and he also, in Concept of Anxiety, he also, Kierkegaard talks about freedom and finiteness. And actually that's, that's maybe a more helpful illustration because think about it this way. Um, let's say before you're starting a job, okay? you have an infinite amount of possibilities in your mind, an infinite amount of freedoms that you can, that, a bunch of dreams that you can kind of impose upon your future and think that, oh, I have all these things that I can do. But once you get in the job, you start realizing the, the necessary limitations that you're in. And it's difficult. You've, you experience this kind of anxiety where you can't take everything you imagined and transmute it into a concrete form. So you can't take all of your dreams that you have in reality and fit them into these finite spaces. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. It sounds really, yeah, really, really familiar to me on a personal note. But, but no, I mean, it makes sense. Um, and the way I think Niebuhr brings this tension out is he kind of he does label as attention this is what we call dialectic between these two positions right right where we, we might just kind of condense the language that there's as paul says there's something warring between our parts mm-hmm. like we have this finitude that limits us to certain degrees like we can't just jump off a cliff and fly you know we're, we're bound to laws of gravity but we can make airplanes that can travel us to places. Um, but if we start thinking of ourselves as the conquerors of the air or the sky, um, you know, we might, the, the, the engine of the plane might burst eventually and kill us on the way down. So, yeah. you know, even in when we attempt to do good things by defying our nature a bit, such as building airplane we can give into our own grandeurs and self-delusions and you know miss really important points about our limitations yeah we can begin to like fall into the delusion that we have conquered nature by by building a plane or by building a tower but this is a really good point because later in the in the passive neighbor quotes um from i believe as, as a socialist or a russian newspaper about the state oh yeah um of the workers consciousness i want to find this so i'll, I'll read the whole paragraph but so the 10th anniversary number of the bulletin of the, of the league of fighting godless in russia contained the interesting expression of human pride the stakhanov the stakhanov movement which represents a, a movement for the organization of peace work must play an outstanding role in the overthrow of religion it signifies a mighty increase in the power of man who is conquering nature and breaking down all previously imposed standards. If the scholars of the bourgeois world maintain that there are, are limits beyond which man's perceptions and man's strength cannot go, that there are matters with which limited intelligence will not perceive, it is evident that under the proletarian deliverance from religion, the creation of conscious workers in a class of society can, with the aid of the latest technological acquisitions 
proceed uh, to tasks which man, peasant by religion, would never have dared to face. In a social society, knowledge is free from the narrow limits. Man can learn everything and conquer anything. There is no bulk work which Bolshevists um, cannot take by storm. So the this, this sort of rejoinder, you can give Niebuhr is exactly what's here. Well, Niebuhr, you say we have this transcending element and blah, 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 blah. But all we are as individuals are just located in a class society. And all we need to do is overcome the sort of constraints that keep us from actually imagining things beyond which we are capable at the moment. Yeah. I'm reminded of Jimmy Carter's favorite quote from Niebuhr that the sad duty of politics is to establish justice in a sinful world. Mm. How wonderful of an admission for someone coming into power. You have to think somebody coming into power to becoming the most powerful human on earth. Okay. The president of the United States, his mind must be teeming with all of these, you know, imagined powers that he can just come in and enact and change the world for the better, comes in with so much optimism about what he can achieve, but he has this stark admission that there is a limit. There's a limit to this tower that I can build. I am never going to establish fully justice in a sinful world. There is a point that where I cannot build my tower beyond and in fact, and he doesn't say this, but there's, but there's, uh, there's a truth to be found here, and that Carter recognizes that his own temporal, his own finiteness, his own limitations as a human being will always corrupt kind of his most grandiose uh, illusions about the way the world should be, that even in his attempts to do great things, He's actually re- recognizing the fact that he's going to be able to, he's actually going to do without knowing it really harmful things by doing that. This is the really important point that Niebuhr is trying to bring out in this section. I think we should probably highlight the most exactly what you said that even in Carter's like greatest ambitions, there's something that still can corrupt those ambitions. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and go ahead, Zach. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, he says um, at the end of the first section, he says human pride is the greatest is greatest when it is based upon solid achievements, but the achievements are never greater and never great enough to justify pretensions. This pride is at least one aspect of what Christian orthodoxy means by original sin. It is not so much the in- an inherited corruption as an inevitable taint upon the spirituality of a finite creature always enslaved to time and place, never completely enslaved, and always under the illusion that the measure of his emancipation is greater than it really is. Yeah. And I think that, like, <clears throat> as you guys are talking about this, I, I keep kind of coming back to this idea that it's like this human belief that we are, we are free, we're, we're emancipated from those things which we are not. It's like a constant returning to the fact that we're not as powerful and as free because like freedom is i guess consists of like power and like the opportunity to accept execute that power with choices in some sense yeah mm-hmm. and i guess neighbor really limits it down and says we don't really have as many choices as we think we do you know we don't really like 
I don't know a better way to frame it than that. You know, the, we're always under always, the illusion that the measure of his emancipation is greater than it really is. By our very just, composition, we are tempted by the, the structure in which we find ourselves. We're tempted by our own imaginations that far exceed our own limitations. That is always the case. And I think that this is at, on page 30, at the, at the top of page 30, he actually goes into this description of sin then being something that is inevitable, but not necessary. So he says that we are almost preconditioned, okay? It's almost like we are preconditioned to be tempted toward realizing the universal within the limited and temporal, um, exacting our own power over something that we simply cannot overpower. Yeah. yeah, and I think our present situation puts us in a unique circumstance. I think that um, I've been reading a lot about the future for a series I'm doing at the, at the church. Oh, yeah. And there's, I mean, this is kind of, the sentiment is blatant presently. I mean, people are just blatantly uh, expecting the, the infinite to be realized oh in the finite. I mean, yeah. from, uh, you know, it's all surrounding technology and humans' use of technology. But I, I think of Yuval Harari's book, uh, Homo Dios. I mean, it's just kind of, it's, it's just chock full of this. You know, it's a chock full of like, we're basically moving toward the infinite we're, we're moving, you know, our, all that binds us to be finite will soon break away. Um, I mean, obviously I'm generalizing and summarizing his book really briefly, but it's the sentiment, you know what I mean? It's the sentiment that you yeah. encounter in his book that uh, you just kind of see kind of pushed back on here. And yes, you also have kind of the seedbed for uh, irony of American history, which will come later, which is basically our own pretensions are all mixed up and kind of what makes us great, but they're also going to be the things that limit us and make us mess up. So I love this next section. The next section is about building towers and it goes through the history of all these different movements um, about how the Greeks, you know, thought that they could establish kind of this universal city state type of thing. Um, even Plato and Aristotle were kind of on board with this kind of dream. Uh, oh, the Republic is all about this, basically. Um, but, uh, but there's these limitations that are found in here. There's always a limitation that will always end up haunting the dreams and like causing the tower to fall. Um, and he, he moves from like the Greeks into the Romans and Stoicism into the feudalization, uh, feudalism and uh, mercantilism kind of uh, exploiting its vulnerabilities. Um, and it leads us ultimately to today where we have the gall. We have people today, like Zach is talking about, who have the gall to think, oh, now we found it. Now we found the salvation. Now we found the way of discovering our universalism within the particulars. It's just madness. I mean, to, to, to look at the, the span of history like this, to see us making the same mistake over and over and over again. What would it sound like? Like, say you're in a conversation with somebody, let's say a, a scientist or a, a historian who's not a Christian, or it could be someone in a church, you know, maybe not really realizing this point by neighbor. But what would like, what would it sound like if you're talking to them just one on one and you say, you know, I don't know if we're capable of ever overcoming our pretensions. And they're like, well, you know what? We can't. I think it's not about now, but we'll see it in just a bit after we get the next discovery, after we get the next, you know, it's not about, I don't think it's about overcoming pretensions. I think it's about overcoming limitations. You know what I mean? I think that we become pretentious because we say that we are 
overcoming our limitations. We're mm-hmm. overcoming our finite, you know, um, limit. We're, we're, we're overcoming our limitations. We're overcoming what makes us finite. So are you saying then, Zach, that the goal should be maybe not to always point out the pretensions, but the actual thing that's grounding this person, the limitations that's going to make this dream impossible. But the difficulty with this is, and Niebuhr makes this point in chapter two, I believe that it's always difficult to see when you're inside the system, your own limitations. Like, I'll tell you right now, like you're talking to like people like transhumanists, uh, people like Ray Kurzweil, who believe that like, we'll be able to upload ourselves, you know, onto computer, like our consciousness onto computers someday, and we'll be able to live infinitely or something like that. Um, it can be difficult to point out kind of the limitations to these people and the, the ways to show them that this isn't going to be all rainbows and roses, that there's going to, there's a very uh, dystopian element to the future that lays before us as well. Can I ask you a question? Actually? Well, I was going to, I was going to answer your question, Aaron. I wanted to yeah. say, point to it. I mean, I don't mean to bring him up again here, but Yuval Harari's book, Homo Dias, you know, he's got a section, a whole section dedicated. And it says at the very top, the last days of death. You know what I mean? Like uh, yeah. that, that speaks to his sentiment. Yeah, his... I think that's the exact same thing Cliff is, is getting at. Um, yeah. Well, but, you know, Niebuhr actually makes a really, really interesting point. And I think Cliff, you were just about to hit, hit it. Um, but didn't say quite exactly what Niebuhr says. In his discussion on um, the evolution of how of the foundation of liberty as a universal and natural mm. as a universal principle that we just take for granted that is part of natural law and it transforms into um, middle class expectations with Locke that now, you know, fraternity, brotherhood, all these things of peace now include property. Now it's kind of taking the property is a universal norm and stuff like that. Yeah. But Niebuhr says in every tower of Babel, the foundation is more honest than the pinnacle. I love that. Which was like, damn, that was, that's pretty finely pointed. So, well, and he's it, saying like, and that it gives such a beautiful explanation of how perfect some of these philosophical systems can seem at their root, at their base. If you're just reading John Locke, you're just like, holy crap, he's figured it out. If you're just reading Karl Marx, you're like, holy crap, you just figured it out. And I've been there. Like, I've been like reading these people throughout the history of philosophy and every single one of them, I'm just like, oh my gosh, they get it. Yeah. But they don't. (laughs) I was about to ask, because I was about to ask you, and I mean, you can jump in too, Zach, because you were making a really good point that I actually think is really relevant to Cliff's stuff. And I wonder if the Homo Deus book actually... Um, mentions anything about it but you were mentioning transhumanism a moment ago what is the foundation of transhumanism i think the basis would be like i mean i'm obviously you know cliff wrote his phd basically largely confronting this but what what i would say is it's basically recognizing that there's an inevitability to human technology that's going to lead us to transcend what makes us human mm-hmm. like what those definite <laughs> those definitions it's actually like, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book, uh, Abolition of Man. It was kind of before its time, you know what I mean? But it, it's kind of like in the 1800s, we abolished God. Sorry. In the 19th century, we, abol- we abolished God. And now the 20th and 21st century, the idea is that we're abolishing man. That's the next project. Mm-hmm. And that will bring us to some next, you know, something. We're next. always trying to abolish uh, something that seems particular to us. 
uh, to attain some new universal. Um, but there's always going to be another particular, yeah. you know, there's always going to be another limitation. That yeah. really does a number on ethics as well, because our ethical systems, <laughs> kind of like what you said earlier about at the pinnacle of any philosophical system, it, it seems like it's got to figure it out. Right. Yeah. And like in our ethics are the same way. So when you get down to the knit and grit of what Niebuhr is getting at, it really just throws a monkey wrench in the way you do ethics as well. Yeah. And how you think about certain things. I mean, he, he does make this point at the beginning of the essay that the way in which modern man sees religion, he appraises it as religion is consciousness of our highest um, mm. uh, values. Oh, I love that. Um, but he says that nothing further can be from the truth. Religion is actually the a deep uneasiness of our highest values. If you don't mind, uh, can I read that again? Yeah, go right ahead, yeah. Religion, declares the modern man, is consciousness of our highest social values. Nothing could be further from the truth. True religion is a profound uneasiness about our highest social values. Yeah, I love this. This like encapsulates my love for Niebuhr so much. But uh, the and- issue here as well is that in the, just a few sentences before, he's talking about the reason why modern man wants to get rid of this doctrine of God um, is because of the, the idea of a jealous God induces guilt. Mm-hmm. And so you get to the point in your uneasy conscience where you, you are no longer deluded in self grandeur of feeling like you are sort of king of your castle, you ruler and maker of your situation, but you feel a bit guilty of like your pretensions, of like all, all the grand narratives you're telling yourself. You kind of have this sense of, wow, I've got to, I don't have all the answers. My, my story doesn't tell the whole thing, you know? Yeah. Something that I really tried to expose in the way that I teach philosophy. Um, so Aaron might remember this. I teach philosophy kind of dialectically. So like one, po- one power in philosophy rises up and challenges the next power. And then it kind of creates this new synthesis that now these people are fighting within this new synthesis. Uh, and I tried to, I got this from my like learning at Xavier because Xavier took us through reading like um, primary sources like Plato and then reading uh, Descartes and, and so on and so forth. And each way along the way, you get convinced of somebody new. And then you realize once you get to the next person, oh, this is what these people were missing beforehand. But by the end of the class, you're kind of left wondering, okay, which one was right? They all made sense within their kind of own paradigm. Mm -hmm. Uh, But you come to realize, I think, and I think that this is what's very important for a Christian, for lack of a better term, worldview or a Christian way of understanding the world, uh, is that what we have at the center of our idealism or the way that we understand the world is this figure that stands above everything that is constantly knocking down. It's God is basically the concept of God, the way that God should function in our beliefs, um, philosophical beliefs, is a constant source of deconstructing what we've built. You know, constantly telling us, constantly showing us there's this universal principle that is beyond us that will constantly expose our fallacies, you know, underneath all of our pretensions. You know, and that's why I think it's so important 
for developing um, kind of young minds is kind of this thing that's always there that's haunting us uh, and telling us that we are just mere mortals. And that on a fundamental level is always God. And I think that's what it is for Niebuhr as well. That, is, that was really good. <laughs> I really enjoyed listening to that. Um, now, I think maybe we make a distinction here as well for our listeners, because they might be wondering at this point, damn, Niebuhr is just destroying all the things we take for granted. So mm-hmm. where the hell do we begin <laughs> and go, right? I mean, yeah. this is the famous problem between Descartes, well, the previous problems that Kierkegaard had with Descartes. Descartes' whole philosophical system begins with a, a mode of skepticism. You take everything you believe and you 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 boil it no. down. Um, you doubt everything until you can reach some level of certainty, right? Um, now, the only thing famously that Descartes can get to is that he thinks, therefore he is. Mm-hmm. But Kierkegaard has this point, well, you know, if all you do is doubt, then anything you arrive at, you're going to doubt out as well, even thinking about yourself. Yeah. Um, so it leads you to an absurd position of absolute meaninglessness. But the, the good thing about Niebuhr here is that kind of like your guards leap of faith, he begins with myth. So he's situating himself within some sort of narrative and story that can give meaning. So if our listeners are wondering, well, why is he starting with myth in the first place mm-hmm. to explain? That's probably that's the best way of doing it. Well, it's kind of like what we discussed regarding the first chapter is that Niebuhr understands, and he spells this out much more in Nature and Destiny. Niebuhr understands that if you pick a certain rationalism to understand the world, that's going to ultimately become the tower. So you have to start with irrationalism to a degree. You have to start with, I always call it a lie, but you always have to start with a a, uh, superficial deception in order to show the way that the world actually is knowing full well at the very beginning and maybe this goes back to my original question about why is he doubting this myth so much i mean why is he making such a big deal about the intentions of it even uh is that he he wants to start from this print this governing principle that isn't subordinated to a particular rationality because as soon as you lock yourself into that mode of rationality then that itself becomes the governing center that itself becomes the uh, babble that itself becomes the unifying principle. Uh, so we almost need these myths in order to even start the discussion, you know, about what truth is. That's a good point. That's very interesting. So yeah, I mean, most of our society today would think that we kind of begin as blank slates and that yeah. we're just acquiring information and then we just shoot it out. But so what you're saying is that we all start off with some myths, some towers already present among us and that we're acquiring from them. What, what, what do you guys think? I mean, this might be a question for later, but I don't know if we can answer it now. What are some beyond transhumanism and the stuff Zach was talking about? What are some other myths that we're dealing with today? I think the one that you mentioned about the blank slate is a big one. This is, this is how we construct our politic. Um, this is Locke's second treatise. It's all about, it's where we get our rights, you know, is that we are all born equal with this blank slate. No, there's no king here. There's nobody above you. 
um, and your ethic is devised by you not encroaching upon the rights of of another. But you, this in itself is subordinated to nature. Like, and I, Niebuhr brings us out in Nature and Destiny that Locke's God is nature, you know, ultimately, you know, uh, and even from that, that can become a Tower of Babel. Can you elaborate on that a little bit in terms of like how that's a Tower of Babel? I don't quite see. I don't know. I, I don't quite see it. What, what, do, you, what do you think? Is a, yeah. So what do you think is it like in your understandings? Like, what do you think a, a Tower of Babel is? Um, maybe that might help clarify what, what you're thinking. Well, I'm just thinking like, you know, something that helps us. It gives us the illusion that we've transcended our limitations. Some so sort how of, does nature some, do that? Some sort of... Um, um, ultimate aspiration or not ultimate, but, you know, per the time it's the ultimate, you know I mean? It's seen as like a, uh, a pinnacle of human aspirations that help us to transcend our finiteness. Yeah. Um, well, your question is, um, how does nature act? Yeah. That yeah. Maybe in like in a lay person's way, like mm. how does what you're saying about John Locke and nature? Yeah. Good question. Fall, well, fall into this, you know? So nature is a really interesting one because a lot of people have a lot of people who are naturalists come in with the illusion that actually the ultimate form of expression, the ultimate form of freedom is found in nature. Mm. But actually, the more that you move away from kind of industrialism, the more you move away from rationalism and idealism, and the more you move into Walden, you know, like Thoreau uh, area, like you're just roughing it out in nature. Actually, that's just an illusion. That's not real freedom. Now you find yourself bound by nature, nature's impulses, nature's uh, laws, nature's uh, uh, desires, your own natural desires. You become kind of a slave unto your own nature in a way and your particular interests of your own uh, self-interest. So what like these things become a slave over you is your own self-interest. So uh, one thing within nature that Locke clearly there's clearly kind of a uh, particular principle that that ultimately will end up becoming really awful when we universalize it is the concept of equality. That we come in thinking that, oh, we're all just born the same, born free, but we are stuck under the delusion that everybody's freedom is the same. But that's not true. Some people born in the projects are not born as free and as, uh, you know, they're not born as free or as equal as people born in, you know, Hollywood or whatever, however you want to put it. Does that make yeah. sense? So nature can become its own idol that enslaves us um, and that becomes uh, kind of a way of enforcing upon our governing systems um, a way that betrays uh, a true freedom or a true understanding of equality, et cetera. You kind of got at it too. Cliff. I mean, that, that's a brilliant breakdown. Um, um, maybe just a bit more on the historical view of why nature is so important to some people like the Waldens and the Rose. Like when you get like through industrialization, um, there is this sort of, desire to return to a state of nature that is seen as your true freedom like yeah. the confines of society 
the confines of technology, industrialization. All these things are, are they limit the, the, the ability for one to be themselves. So to, to go back to nature is to actually be your true self to some extent. That's a really bad breakdown. But yeah, there, there is this idea that if we just return to a state of nature, then we'll be all right. But that, as Cliff said, can just become another idol, another tower that we sort of worship. Yeah. Now you are more enslaved by hunger. Now you are more enslaved um, by work. Now you are more enslaved uh, by the need for shelter. Um, all, yeah. all the ways that we are limited within nature become exposed when we leave the comfort of the city or the comfort of industrialization. Yeah, I mean, yeah, um, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, think about, you know, we, we kind of take our modern bourgeois luxuries for granted at this point, don't we? As a really good example, born in America, I've always had an AC unit. <laughs> this freaking week in England is 102 degrees in my flat and it is roasting. So this is a very personal point you're making. Very here. personal point I'm making here. <laughs> I'm dying. The ice doesn't last more than two seconds. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> you, anyway. you, are, you are not free. You are being <laughs> oppressed by the heat. I am. I am being oppressed by the heat. Uh, make it go away. I'm going to call my woke senators. Um, I don't know if this is point. <laughs> anyway, the, the point is, you know, like, if I just return to a state of nature, I'm always going to be freaking hot when it's really hot. But I do really enjoy the luxuries of being able to temper my climate at my own, you know, discretion. Yeah. So there's always, even within nature, there are certain limits um, that will quickly crumble that tower. Um, and keeping you from finding true nature. Does, does, that, does that make sense, Zach? Yeah, I see what you're saying. So we get through kind of the tower, uh, building of towers, and he goes through this. Some might say it's very generalizing. You know, it's, he's generalizing these periods, but it's really just to give a snapshot of the way the towers fall um, or the way the towers are built. I'm sorry. The Greeks and the city states, um, it was all about universalizing the Greek Hellenistic way of life type of thing. But social stratification from within brought its own demise like the greek part of it is what killed it you know i mean yeah the i think the best example niebuhr gives in this like section for me at least is the study uh by arnold toynbee when he talks about egyptian um oh my gosh yeah pyramids is so good um and this is actually getting into the part three so this is when the 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 falling towers part but go ahead we'll just go right into it I mean, just just think about what those pyramids represent. Yeah, they are themselves projects to extend our our what we see as our limitations beyond ourselves. But what was the main laboring force behind building those towers or those pyramids? They were slaves, and so Niebuhr says that um, the building of the pyramids accentuated the injustices of slavery upon which Egyptian civilization was built and thus hastened the decay which the pyramids were meant to defy. I love so the irony. It just shows the irony of the situation. I mean, it goes later on to say that even our militarism um, 
is just a way of stopping the inevitability of our social decay. So use of slavery, militarism, they just halt decay to an extent. Well, I, but it will come eventually. Yeah. I think that the, the this tower, this Egypt thing, it speaks to his attempt to have an empirical quality to everything that he talks about. So if he talks about human sin and, or, or sorry, in this case, an example of human finiteness or trying to escape human finiteness, he uses his examples from history to say, look, this is not just in the, in the myth of the Tower of Babel, but it is present. It's a present reality. It's all over the place. Mm-hmm. And there's an empirical quality to that. He creates a certain validity to what he's saying. It, it encourages his listeners to listen. You know what I mean? It really kind of gives a, a validity that other, I think other theologians don't really take, right? They don't say, look, here's, here's the examples of how we do this on a regular basis. It's that pragmatism in him. He loves like grounding everything and something that we see and experience. Yeah. yeah and it just kind of helps understand it, I think. But you wonder like to an extent if that pragmatism can be a bit delusion, delusional in itself. I mean, because he, he does pronounce the end, almost the end of the United States in 1939, when he says, the, it's, it is significant that the Empire State Building in New York, perfect symbol of the pride of a commercial civilization, was completed just as the Great Depression came upon us. And it Which is, is a fairly, good point. That's a yeah. good point, though. But go ahead. It, it, that's, it is a good point. It says, but this is the thing that is most important. This, this, uh, this clause. And it is fairly certain that this great building will never be fully occupied. Well, why, Niebuhr? Why won't it ever right. be occupied? That's where well, he takes a big old swing and miss. Yeah. Yeah, you definitely missed that. And look where, we're at, look where we are at now. America is, you know, how many years beyond this? Like 80 90 years later well it's kind of like displays the limitations of even pragmatism that jeremy was talking about a couple weeks ago that you know we we don't even know when we're on the precipice like we can't see around the bend the best we can do is kind of like as niebuhr would say discern the signs of the times. so i guess jesus would say that too discern the signs of the times but to make that leap then and say this therefore will happen like niebuhr tries to do here by saying the Empire State Building will never be fulfilled. It maybe, still works, though. Maybe he needs a dose of his own medicine there. And it yeah. still works, though. I mean, I think I think that there's still there was a death of a certain way of doing civilization that came with the Depression. You know what I mean? True. There's a there was a. <clears throat> I think it could have gone a lot of other ways. You know what I mean? It could have been the, the real end. I'm not saying that you know he obviously swung and missed, but there's something about that ironic moment that's still deeply ironic and it still highlights a good point because uh u.s is going to fundamentally change Mm -hmm. so the empire state building will be filled but it's going to have to be radically changed from the rubble of world war ii into a global superpower in order to fill that building so it's going to become extremely different uh but i i love how zach put that it this is it does kind of represent the end of a world you know uh when but and we can't let that irony escape us that the that the empire state building was built uh during the great depression or right at the right at the beginning of the great depression
So this is a quote that kind of brings the section together, I think. Um, page 39 at the very top. Actually, I might as well read the, the, the paragraphs that bookend this because they're so good. These are so quotable. Man, put these on a, your refrigerator. I remember I was, uh, I was told once um, by our old librarian at CCU, Scott Lloyd, said that he saw this quote framed um, in the Cincinnati Public Library which is hilarious and very ironic in itself. But this is the quote. It says, one of the most pathetic aspects of human history is that every civilization is, expresses itself most pretentiously, compounds its partial and universal values most convincingly, and claims immortality for its finite existence at the very moment when the decay which leads to death has already begun. What a cheering quote on the wall i know like think of that that's on the wall of the public library uh and then this is a great one just the imagery of this is beautiful and it bookends the section this is the section that's on the crumbling towers the towers that fall um it says in every civilization its most impressive period seems to precede death by only a moment like the woods of autumn life defies death in a glorious pageantry of color but the riot of this color has been distilled by an alchemy in which life has already been touched by death. Thus man claims immortality for his spiritual achievements just when their mortal fate becomes apparent and death and mortality are strangely mixed into and potent in the very pretension of immortality. Love this. And one point that I wanna make and I wanna hear you guys thoughts. So I'm going to start with one point and then work backwards to the 1980s. I'll allow it. Okay. So I believe that Trump is the expression of all that is unchristian about the Christian Tower of Babel that is the Christian nation. Trump is the, the full on admission that what we are, what the Christians are doing in this Christian nation is bolstered and supplemented by an very unchristian even in a politic sense demonic uh essence that is help propping it up it's the scaffolding that's help holding up this tower is very non-christian and trump is the evidence of that that there was always something nefarious at the bottom of this but he is the explicit form of that going back to that point in our history where we express ourselves most pretentiously, compounding our partial and universal values most convincingly and claiming immortality for our finite existence at the very moment when the decay which leads to death has already begun. I think this time might be Ronald Reagan. That was America's star-spangled beauty in all its glory. Everybody's on the America train and it is expressed most beautifully. I think one could one could uh, argue most beautifully in the words of Reagan, Americanism at its core is Ronald Reagan. And it's interesting that that is kind of a moment that we, I don't know. And I'm sure that every historian points to a certain time of history of, you know, that's the moment that America went downhill or started this cascade or something like that. Yeah. But, it's a, but it's a very interesting time period where our Americanism was on full display and it and it preceded this period we're in now. It's interesting. Isn't it funny? 
I, I have two points, and I don't know how to bring them together because one's like a sarcastic comment, then I'll, ma- I'll make seconds. But the first one is, isn't it funny that the sort of Reagan-Americanism Christianity that you're talking about is preceded by probably one of the most Christian presidents the United <laughs> States has ever had? Yeah. Who still continues to serve like by building houses with having many, he like eradicated the West Nile virus in yeah. Africa. <laughs> what the hell? That's um, interesting. Now my my sarcastic comment. This is my sarcastic comment. So the pretend I'm just asking the first one. So wait a minute, Cliff. So you're telling me that the guy who's done most for Christianity more than any other president. Are you talking about Trump or Reagan now? Oh, go ahead. Trump. Trump. Okay. But you're telling me the guy who's done the most for evangelicals more than any other president in his president is a demon? What do you mean by that? I said in a politic sense. So I don't think he's actually a demon, but I will say that he represents that, uh, that really nefarious, that really... evil part that has been kind of contained and kind of suppressed and kind of uh, veiled, you know, about Christian nationalism or, or uh, this is a Christian nation type of language. City on a Hill, maybe we could use that expression of, uh, of the sentiments that Niebuhr brings out in Irony of American History, that this expo, like I think that Trump exposes that the city on a hill mentality was always supported by a very non-christian component you know of maybe i don't know if we could call it uh i don't know i don't know what we would call it um i guess the expression of freedom that ultimately finds its end in a kind of authoritarianism i don't know i don't know how to analyze that maybe we should devote an entire i think this november this october we should dive into what makes christian nationalism christian nationalism Mm. Um, and I, I think that there's always been kind of a latent authoritarianism that masquerades kind of as freedom, you know, with, within, within the, the Christian right, maybe. But anyway, thoughts? I'm not mm. saying, by the way, I'm not saying like Reagan is evil. <laughs> I'm not saying that, I'm not even saying that Reagan was a bad president. Yeah. I'm saying that how like how he crystallized and he did he was very effective at kind of crystallize uh, obama admits this an audacity of hope reagan crystallized made so clear like the vision of americanism um and uh and now we are seeing kind of the the really um maybe the evil underbelly of kind of that those pretensions yeah i wonder like with the current state of affairs in the United States, everyone is pronounced, I mean, like with high inflation, high petrol prices, high food prices, I mean, they all have connections, you know, when you get higher gas prices, you get higher food prices because most foods transport on trucks. Most people don't see the causal links there, but whatever. But, you know, you get a lot of people on the right who are like, the country is doomed. Mm-hmm. What a blow up. But now you're, if you look at the thing really carefully, you see like nationally gas prices are coming down and therefore there will be some sort of trickle effect on other things. But I wonder like, and I'm not saying they're, they're conscious of this is true, 
but the right thing to be conscious of their own idea that there is some sort of decay happening in the in their country and so like they are like biting back because yeah. of that understanding of what they think is a decay right so it's a very honest pursuit to, to a degree Do, are they yeah, really seeing yeah. something legitimate well maybe i mean yeah so i mean this might be the sort of double-edged sword for neighbor then like you can't really condemn these people, which he doesn't do later on right. in the irony of American history, where he talks about, you know, our activity as ironic rather than as being stupid. Right, <laughs> or, right. You know, um, we kind of talked about that a few episodes previous. But yeah, these people might have some legitimate concerns to a degree, but they might just be deluded about the causes or the, what, you know, what Niebuhr calls the foundation. Well, they might find the pinnacles a bit more of the issue. That's where I think that Niebuhr will ultimately say, yes, there's always an in, in, inherent corruption to even our best thing, like even the best things we have to offer the world. But we mm -hmm. can't pretend that any of this is an end all that, yeah. you know, that this is our this is we're on the track now to utopianism or or even to use the language of like this is the best possible way, you know, or something like that. Um, uh, there should always be an anxious note attached to uh, our highest dreams. It gets back to his original point that uh, that true religion is very uneasy about our highest social values. Um, well, I, th I think that's kind of the next section, right? Well, I pulled that from the beginning, but yeah, the, the last section is really about that. And um, we're kind of starting to run a little bit low on time. So we cover the falling towers. So the contemporary application, do you want to take this Zach? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, sure. Um, I, I think the easiest way to summarize this last section is that he brings it to the vet, like, you know, in rare Niebuhr form, he offers us a solution, a, a, an alternative um, to kind of the, the illusion you could say of believing that the finite and the infinite, we, the finite can transcend its finiteness. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and basically, I mean, if we wanted to really summarize, you know, put it down, he says on page uh, 45, he says, the worship of such a God leads to contrition, not merely to a contrite recognition of the conscious sin of pride and arrogance, which the human spirit commits, but to a sense of guilt, for the inevitable and inescapable pride involved in every human enterprise, even in the highest and most perfect or more correctly particular in the highest and noblest human enterprise. And uh, there's not a better, not a better quote out there about you know, the alternative. Right. And I think that it's what you guys are just talking about is this idea of being contrite. It's a, this idea of approaching the, you know, not giving up on human enterprises, not giving up on human aspirations but recognizing uh, there's the, a corruption um, yeah the sin this you know that this this sin that is inevitable and inescapable right there's a sense of guilt right people don't like they like to look at religion and say that guilt is it's just this guilt kind of fear-mongering thing that makes you afraid of hell but i think that this is a very positive guilt because it it's a it's like a it's like a an awareness right it's a it's a recognition within oneself that I'm always going to try to transcend myself and become something else. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm really susceptible to the illusion that I will accomplish that. Um, 
and that I kind of need to return and be, I need to return in, in a repentant way. Um, so accepting we, God we, is the constant way of kind of leveling ourselves and keeping ourselves transfixed in this place. And, of, and not just you know, I, I said that wrong. Cause it's not just I it's we yeah. it's, it's right. in our enterprises. We should approach them with a contrite recognition of the conscious sin of pride and arrogance. You know what I mean? Like that's, you know, I don't know how you, I don't know how you do that, but I think that that's one of the things Niebuhr's best well, at, you know? I, I think that he gives a really good apologetic here for biblical religion. Um, and I, I think, so there's this contrite spirit that we should have about ourselves or this kind of guilt, uh, this feeling of guilt, um, the con the, or the constant recognition that there is a God that is above all of our pretensions. Um, and it's constantly kind of layer, uh, kind of layering our own pretensions. Um, but, uh, but this is a great, I think he's kind of making an argument that biblical religion is actually very important for the, for the human situation. Um, and this is what he says. The Tower of Babel myth is one of the first, as it is one of the most vivid expressions of the quality of biblical religion. The characteristic distinction of biblical religion, in contrast to cultural religions, and we could probably throw rationalism and naturalism and all those things in there, is that the latter seek to achieve the eternal and divine by some discipline of the mind or heart, whether mystical or rational, while the former believes that the, a gulf remains fixed between the creator and the creature, which even revelation does not completely bridge. Every revelation of the divine is relativized by the finite mind which comprehends it. Consequently, God, though revealed, remains veiled. I love this. I love this imagery. God, even though he is revealed through the scriptures, still remains veiled. His thoughts are not our thoughts, nor his ways our ways. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so high his thoughts beyond our thoughts and his ways beyond our ways. The worship of such a God leads to contrition. And that's where we get into this idea of contrition. So he's saying that we need biblical religion in order to keep ourselves in check, you know, and to and to vitalize and catalyze our worship of the God who keeps us within our proper fixed state. And it's ultimately going back to the conclusion of Kierkegaard, we must remain kind of in this anxious state without trying to escape. And God, God is the best way to keep us there. So I love this chapter because it's, it really is, if I, like, if I were to point to anything uh, and say, this is a great kind of summary of nature and destiny of man, it would be this. Nature and Destiny of Man is basically this chapter just made huge. I think it also does a good job of uh, maybe making a case for the, the place of church in society. Like what is the place of a Christian church in society? Oh, very I good. I think that this is actually a, like if we need that, you know, if, if Niebuhr's right, if his thesis is correct, that a contrite conscience is necessary for uh, avoiding some of these pretensions. I think it makes a case for needing a place to go to do this or, or a group yeah. to do this or a, a, a people to do this with. And obviously this doesn't justify the church entirely, but I think it, it may, you know, it just speaks to me to say, Hey, this is, this is what you should be practicing. This is what you should be inviting people into. And that's something we try to prioritize at our church is really returning and recognizing our finiteness and our, the, the, yeah. how we, we end up in this spot over and over again, where we're Bill, continually trying to, yeah. 
fill our liturgy with this, fill our yeah. songs with this, mm-hmm. you know, fill our lives with this constant reminder of our limitations. But those places where we can do something, we don't want to get trapped and, you know, uh, just, you know, feeling guilty all the time and not willing to do anything. No, but I, I think that it's not a paralyzing guilt, but a freeing guilt in the sense that like it's saying it, it is, that's what it, you know, it's not like, it's not like we don't, it's not like we are being told that we're guilty. It's like, Hey, it, a healthy thing to do is to recognize that we are finite, but that we, we allow our pretensions to kind of take over. Um, and we allow ourselves to be consumed by them. And we almost need to just have our eyes open continually. Yeah. We need to return to a place where we're confronted by it's like a freeing guilt. You know what I mean? It's like, Hey, like, Oh man, like I am, I am just human. Right. I, I, yeah. I got consumed by this idea that I wasn't, but now yeah. I am. You know, in, in our own finiteness, you know, we, we, the, we can have the unintended consequence of doing what Cliff said over, overemphasizing our guilt or being overly, self fixated upon our guilt so we have to we have to use i guess neighbor's method properly here but i know if you, if you don't use it properly you could be self you know fixated well upon this yourself. is where he's going to get into his construction of sin that there's pride on the one hand of us exerting ourselves over things no we need to feel a little bit more guilty than that we can't just go running around wanting to change everything right. or we're going to be awful and then there's the flip side of that which is sensuality of reducing ourselves to so much to the point that we're no longer responsible for anything. I think it's yeah. not guilt in the conventional sense. It's this kind of like feeling you get that it's like, okay, I need to change that and then I'll be good. It's like, Hey, I need to return and acknowledge how I try to escape, how, how I continually return, uh, try to escape my, my finite scope and try to imagine that I can transcend it. Uh, and then I'm participating in a system and a, a group of people who are constantly making that same mistake. And we need to seek God's forgiveness uh, to free us from that guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, but and to free and us not, so we can act. Not even yeah. free us from that guilt, but to like help us see the world clearly, I guess is the way that I put it. That's what, I, that's what I'm getting at. Like we get deluded, right? And we, it creates an illusion in our minds. But being contrite is like, I think a really apt way to actually return to a, a position where we're like humble. You know what I mean? Uh, does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think Aaron's just saying like, there's a way to overdo that too, though. But there, it's all about finding the tension, yeah. You know, and our capabilities and our limitations. Yeah. But I think that's that's that itself is the the contriteness is the is as the uneasy conscience that is the un, that is the kind of understanding of the tension. If you go to the left. And again, self-fixate on the guilt. If you go to the right and you say, well, you know, yeah, this is pretty bad, but I'm pretty, it's okay. Then you're kind of falling off the road a bit. So there's always that temptation to fall off the tension. And it's important to realize that these are empirically verifiable facts about human psychology. Like this is, um, and this is kind of what Niebuhr tries to argue later on, but that the fact that our imagination outruns our finiteness, that is a fact. We can imagine far beyond what we can do. Um, there's no way that you can kind of deny that. 
And so he's just kind of assigning language about how we sin in either direction, you know, um, which is a brilliant part of it. But anyway, all right. So any last words? I think we're about that at that time. No, I think it's a great chapter. Yeah. It's one of the best. It's something that we should return to over and over again and ask yeah. Niebuhr forgiveness. No, I'm just joking. Anyway. <laughs> oh, St. Niebuhr. All right. Well, that about does it for this episode of the Love by Neighbor podcast. Thanks again for listening. Hit all the buttons, like, subscribe, follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor, and write us a good review if you are enjoying it. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there. <laughs>